In 2013, one in five households was considered food insecure in the United States. Who makes up these households? And how does recently passed and long-awaited Farm Bill legislation impact food assistance programs? And what was the nature of the political debate and how compromise was finally reached to pass the legislation? From the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. I'm your host, Ann Kanapke. Welcome to the Chicago Policy Review podcast. I'm here today with Sophie Milam, Director of Nutritional Assistance and Budget Policy at Feeding America. Sophie, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. So to get things started, can you give listeners a uh, maybe your 30-second elevator speech on what Feeding America does and thus what are their organization's policy priorities? Absolutely. Feeding America is a network of over 200 food banks around the country Those food banks are working with thousands of local agencies like soup kitchens, pantries, um, religious organizations, senior centers to distribute food to low-income people in need. Um, We serve about 37 million people each year, including 14 million children, and um, leverage both public and private resources in the work that we do. There are a lot of federal nutrition programs that we operate, uh, but we also rely heavily on private donations of both food and funds to meet need in, in these communities. So as a result, our policy priorities are really focused heavily on federal nutrition programs as well as policies that encourage charitable donations to food banks like um, the charitable tax donation and uh, Good Samaritan food donation tax credit uh, as well as some of the traditional feeding programs like food stamps, WIC, and, and school meals. So USDA 2013 data indicates that one in five households received food stamps in 2013 a percentage that has been on the steady rise for the past several years. So research indicates that there's this correlation between unemployment rates and food stamp use. Can you give us a snapshot of the food stamp um, recipients currently in the United States and specifically from your perspective, those that Feeding America serves? Sure, we definitely saw a big spike in food stamp participation over the last few years as a result of the recession. And the, the recession began in the end of 2007 and the from one year to the next, the spike in food insecurity increased by about 35%. Um, so, and then we saw pretty soon thereafter, unemployment was going up. SNAP, which is the new name for food stamps, historically follows trends in unemployment, but generally with a little bit of a lag time. So uh, unemployment increased about 94% from 2007 to 2011, and SNAP responded with about a 70% increase over the same period. Since that time, unemployment has started to fall, but again, there's a lag, and so SNAP has kind of leveled off, but participation hasn't yet begun to fall. One of the things that's really important to keep in mind, though, is that SNAP also follows uh, food insecurity and poverty, trends in wages, and so it's, there's a lot more that's going on besides just um, uh, unemployment that's creating that need for additional food assistance. Um, to give you a little bit of a snapshot about the types of folks who are on SNAP, about 76% of households include a child, senior, or disabled person. Um, the vast majority of recipients are well below 100% of the poverty level, even though technically the income threshold is a little bit higher than that. 
and we have a mix of um, a lot of, of single moms and, and their kids, as well as some elderly households living alone. It's, it's really representative kind of of the most vulnerable um, populations in our, in our country. So let's turn specifically to a hot topic policy uh, issue, if you don't mind. Something that I'm sure you've worked on extensively has taken up a significant amount of your portfolio time in the past few years. The president signed the long-awaited farm bill at the beginning of February. It shuffled and some money and cut money in many places, including the food assistance programs and SNAP. So this in particular has been a hot topic of debate. Can you describe the cuts that ended up being made to SNAP and other food assistance programs? And how will that affect the recipients that you just described? Sure. So about $8.7 billion was cut from SNAP over 10 years. And the cuts were structured so that they, they actually only impact certain households in certain states. There are about 15 states that take advantage of a policy that allows states to better coordinate LIHEAP, which provides utility assistance for low-income households, and SNAP. Um, so those 15 states will bear the brunt of the cuts. Additionally, there are only certain households within those states that qualify for that connection. So it, it adds up to about 850,000 households nationwide. So 850,000 households in only 15 states doesn't sound like that big of an impact, but what it means is that the billions of dollars in lost benefits will really be concentrated in just a few households in just a few states. So for the average household who will see their benefits cut as a result of this policy, they'll lose $90 a month in food assistance, which is a huge, huge cut. Um, so the, the policy that we're looking at here is there was a trend uh, over the last couple of decades to better coordinate many of the low-income assistance programs. If you can imagine, it's kind of a patchwork of programs that were created at different times. They're located in different agencies. Um, they're often administered by different agencies at the state level. And so you would have the same families filling out different applications for multiple forms of assistance. And if you need food assistance, chances are you might need help with childcare or utilities or with healthcare. And so there's a real push to kind of streamline that application and enrollment process, both to simplify um, for families getting access to the benefits that they need, but also to reduce caseworker burden and administrative costs for the state. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's being framed a little bit differently in, in this most recent farm bill debate as being kind of a states taking advantage. You know, the, I think that's more reflective of the current political climate as opposed to the real policy debate that's typically is surrounding these programs. And so at the Hair School, we spend a lot of time thinking not only about what makes good policy, so thinking through, you know, how, how good coordination create more efficiency in the system and effectiveness of the policy programs, but also how to factor in the politics of the policymaking process. So we mentioned, we've been talking about this farm bill that in fact is two years after the current legislation expired. And you alluded to this in the last point that you know the political environment in Washington really shaped the debate. I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit more insight from your vantage point of why it took so long and how that compromise was finally able to be reached. In other words, what were the politics of the policymaking process? This is a really great question. Um, I will say that it was three years, not two years, mm, <laughs> because you. they uh, they tried to get a, an early start on the farm bill by attaching it to the super committee. So yes, it was a very long slog working on this. Um, the farm bill is really one of the most fascinating pieces of legislation to work on in Washington 
because it sort of defies traditional um, political lines. A lot of times legislation and, and lining up your votes comes down to just party politics and you know all too often it, it can be partisan. With the Farm Bill, you have issues that certainly fall on party lines, like something like food stamps, but you also have a lot of agricultural programs that have far more to do with geography than they have to do with which party you're uh, a part of. And so there is a lot of complexity to figuring out how to secure the right votes and, um, and, and layering those different pieces together. I think what was particularly unique about this Farm Bill is that it came at a time with a heavy emphasis on deficit reduction. If we were to start the Farm Bill reauthorization now, when the, the deficit has reduced, there's less um, kind of, of a frenzy about cutting. Um, it still would be tremendously difficult to find new spending for the programs, but I think it would really be a completely different debate at this point. So you had that kind of already complex piece of legislation layered on in a time of, of heavy budget cutting. And then, uh, of course, I'm sure folks are familiar with a lot of the political dysfunction with the House and the Tea Party and you know, the inability of, of the House Republicans to be able to pass legislation with a majority of their own party all too often. So uh, it was really fascinating and really exhausting um, to work on for the last few years. But it's, you know, for someone who's interested in how Washington works, I really think there's no better piece of legislation than to kind of follow a farm bill reauthorization. And what you've said in terms of the kind of uh, unique um, set of interests that a farm bill brings to the table. Can you give us a little bit more flavor of then how that plays out in committee politics in both the Senate and the House? Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, you have something like conservation programs and certain conservation programs work better in some areas or for some farmers, depending on what they're growing, than others. Or um, the commodity support programs. If you're growing cotton versus growing corn, you're probably relying on different programs. And so when Congress is looking to make cuts, um, you know, you might be able to get a lot of support for cutting one subsidy, but, um, but maybe not for another. It was an interesting time because the committee chairs this time around were largely not from um, southern agriculture states. And then that kind of switched uh, halfway through because we got a new ranking member um, in the Senate, and that certainly changed kind of the outcome of the bill. But I think, you know, things like specialty crops, there's been a growing emphasis on, from a nutritional standpoint, to emphasize, you know, we should be supporting agriculture that ultimately supports a more nutritious diet and um, moving away maybe from traditional corn support programs. There's not always data to back that up, but at least it's an interesting debate. So you kind of have specialty crop growers in, in states like Maine and um, Michigan going toe-to-toe -to -toe with traditional ag states like Nebraska and Iowa. So it's, it's pretty interesting. That's really interesting, actually, this connection between specialty crops and what is the nutritional index of programs that are being supported. Was that the first kind of emergence of of that conversation in the Farm Bill? We saw it in the last Farm Bill as well, um, where there was, a, I would say, a big plus up in spending on specialty crops. It's definitely now more accepted that that's, you know, a part of the Farm Bill. It's a, um, a part of kind of the agriculture conversation. So I, I think that's something that's been growing and evolving for some time. And, and certainly with the increased kind of awareness about local agriculture and more people being concerned about where their food comes from and um, trying to support you know, farmers markets and CSAs, I think 
there's just a it's really shifted kind of the debate in the farm bill. A lot of folks say there won't be another farm bill because there's just too many um, this traditional alliance between big ag and um, kind of the anti-poverty community has now gotten really complex with local ag and specialty crop growers and all these other interests. So we'll see what things look like five years from now. Thanks. What's next on Feeding America's political agenda? Um, other than kind of recovering from the farm bill, <laughs> we're gearing up for the next major reauthorization, which is the child nutrition bill. It's another major piece of legislation that comes up every five years for um, reauthorization. And this includes programs like school meals and WIC, um, but it also includes a lot of the programs that um, our food banks are operating, like after school feeding, summer feeding, um, those out of school time programs. So uh, it's a great piece of legislation that's focused at reaching children at different age levels and at different, you know, at home or at school or in daycare. Um, so we'll be looking at hopefully making some positive progress there and certainly defending against any types of cuts that come up. With that, we'll thank you for your time, Sophie, for joining us today and tune in next time. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Our podcast was produced and edited today by Ann Knapke. Our theme song is composed and performed by Ryan Gee. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org and on iTunes. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Mm-hmm.